Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer at Dicetower.com. You'll find a host of resources, including all of these sister podcasts of the Dice Tower Network, as well as great news and reviews from Tom and Eric and the rest of the gang, and a fully indexed website. You can punch in any game that you're looking to learn something about, any game you're curious about, and you'll get a full listing of all the content that is there for you, whether it's a review or a video or a blog entry, whatever it happens to be that the Dice Tower or any of the Dice Tower Network contributors have made is going to pop up there for you. So go and check out all they have to offer. The Longview is also probably sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Uh, go and check out why Gamesurplus is my first and favorite choice for online board gaming purchases. They have unparalleled customer service, fantastic pricing, superior shipping, uh, anything that you are looking for. Uh, Velma will be sure to track it down for you just as quickly as she can and get it sent off to you as fast as lightning. So go and check out why Game Surplus is such a special place. And if you do order from them, please be sure to tell them that the Longview sent you. I also, of course, want to send a special shout-out to my local game store, the Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Conveniently located off of Interstate 80 in northeastern PA, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to Main Street in Stroudsburg, where you'll find the Gamer's Edge with a huge selection of board games and card games and collectible card games, video games, vintage video games, you name it, they've got it, and a friendly and knowledgeable staff to boot. So go and check out the Gamer's Edge. And if you stop by, please be sure to tell them that the Longview sent you as well. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and tonight I am very pleased to be joined by Matt Clark. Uh, Matt was kind enough to reach out to me uh, a while back uh, when I was thinking about trying to find someone to do an episode about some of the Matt Gertz games that I really like. And uh, Matt had, had offered to do an episode about Imperial. And at that time, I was actually in contact with uh, uh, Mr. Gertz and trying to see if I could find a way to kind of do a show with him. And so I said, Matt, you know, if you're okay, I'm going to hold off and see if I can snag the man himself. And Matt was really gracious about it and said, oh, absolutely. If you can get Matt Gertz on, you know, that would be awesome. Uh, you know, I, I, and so I was like, okay. It didn't quite pan out. Uh, we had some technical difficulties and some time zone kind of things going on. And so uh, when I kind of reached back out to Matt and said, are you still up for this? He was very gracious and said, yes, I am. And so here he is tonight. And so, Matt, I want to say welcome and thanks for being on the show. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. And uh, it's nice to have a, a new voice on and uh, to have the chance to talk to you about really what is one of my favorite games. And I believe it's one of your favorite games as well. Yes. Yeah, that is absolutely uh, correct. It is really grown to be one of my, you know, top Top three games, easy, I'd say. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I have rarely met a Matt Gertz Rondell game that I don't like. Um, I, I would guess probably the closest, uh, though my wife would kill me for saying it, might be Machu Picchu. Uh, that's actually one of her favorites. Um, yeah, it's okay for me. Uh, but Imperial, which is the one we're going to be covering tonight, is absolutely one of my favorites for many, many reasons that I, I hope we're going to have a chance to discuss and share tonight. So uh, before we begin, Matt, uh, the first thing I'd like to do is just kind of ask ask you uh, where your experience with this game started when did you first become aware of it and what kind of piqued your interest if you can kind of go back in your mind and think about what first attracted you to the game of imperial 
So I'd actually first discovered Imperial just by browsing through the BGG Top 100. I saw that it was well-regarded and well-regarded by people who I thought had tastes kind of similar to mine. And I added it to my wish list, um, kind of forgot about it. But then one year it showed up as my Board Game Geek Secret Santa present. Oh, nice. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then after that, uh, I didn't get around to playing it right away, but we actually pulled it out one night just because we had six people and it accommodated six people. So uh, we threw it on the table and got it going and we loved it. And I played it many times after that with different groups and really just uh, became enamored of the game. Well, you know, thanks for giving uh, your little backstory there and, and kind of uh, explaining uh, how you kind of got into the game. And yeah, it was kind of similar for me because uh, it was highly regarded in, in the BGG listings because I got this game pretty early, um, but I got it after Antiki. So I kind of came to Imperial by way of Antiki. That was kind of the first one of Matt Gert's games that I played. And after I played that one, I kind of started hunting and I found Imperial. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, this looks like fun. It almost reminded me of Risk. I, I know, you know, some people might, you know, want to hit me for that, but it <laughs> did. It kind of reminds like, oh, look, it's like a kind of a global supremacy game. All right, cool. Right. Um, and like you, I was really enamored of the fact that it handled so many players because at that time I had a pretty big regular group that inc- that was about five to seven people. And so I was like, wow, okay, this game is really going to accommodate a large number of people because so many of the Euros that uh, we all play, that you know, if you play that style game, a lot of those are two to four. Sure. And sometimes you get a two to five, but six, other than power grade, it's like every time we got a big group together, it was always, okay, we're going to pull out power grade because it was the only one that I had early on that kind of uh, uh, met that player count. And here comes Imperial. And so we played it, and I very quickly realized, it's like, okay, this really is nothing like Risk. It might look like Risk, but what really fascinated me was it was the first game that I had played where I wasn't a particular thing. Like, I was not Austria-Hungary. I was not England. Like, I was... I was an investor. I was kind of, you know, the puppet master behind the scenes, kind of pulling the strings. And my allegiances shifted. And, uh, you know, I would build a country up and then raid it and leave it for dead. And then, you know, and and it was just like, wow, this is totally different than anything I've ever played before. And that's what really kind of caught my attention uh, when I first played Imperial. So um, you said that you uh, introduced it to several groups. And I've done that as well. And I'm kind of curious, what has been your experience when you're trying to sort of introduce Imperial to new players? Um, Is it something that everybody kind of immediately sort of latched onto? Is it an easy one to kind of introduce new players to or not? What's your opinion about that? Well, yes and no. Um, I have introduced this to more casual players. I've introduced it to pretty serious Euro game players, uh, people with train game experience and even war game players. And the funny thing about it is, is that that thing you're talking about where you don't actually necessarily control one nation for the duration of the game because you're potentially becoming an investor and taking control of different or sometimes no nations, that can be a bit of a a stumbling block. But also because it's a Rondell game, those turns move so quickly that I think people have the chance to kind of wrap their brain around it. They get a chance to either, you know, control a country and do 
uh, some things and build their little empire for a little while. So overall, it's been really successful for me across different groups. And at a higher player count, I feel like it can be sort of more of a fun, lighter game where, you know, if you get three kind of serious Imperial players in one game, it becomes a much sort of heavier investment strategy game. Yeah, I would agree with that too. It's it's a game that definitely is flexible in how it can be approached as either kind of a, as you said, a, a fun kind of a little bit of negotiating and a lot of backstabbing and a lot of laughing, uh, or it can be played, you know, really seriously crunching the numbers. So before we go any further, um, what I think would be good is if we kind of gave people a, an idea of sort of the basics of the gameplay. So would sure. you mind kind of maybe explaining a little bit about uh, the game and a little bit about the theme and, and how just, uh, you know, a general overview of how it's played? Yeah, absolutely. So Imperial, the the board is a map of what's roughly like pre-World War One Europe. And in the game, there are different Imperial powers or nations that uh, vie for dominance throughout. And But like we mentioned earlier, the players, rather than play a specific nation throughout the game, the players act as investors and they're able to purchase bonds in each of these nations, kind of like you would purchase shares in a company during an 18xx game. So whoever, whichever investor has the majority of the bonds purchased in a, in a nation gets to make the decisions for that nation during the nation's turn. So rather than the players have turns, the nations have turns. And you as a player could have multiple turns or you could have no turns if you don't control any nations. And then those decisions that you get to make are uh, constrained by the rondel, like other Gertz games. So the different spaces on the rondel um, allow you to sort of build up your nation and its forces and move them around the board. Um, there's a factory space that allows you to build more factories in your nation. There's a production space, which causes your factories to produce either armies or fleets, depending on the kind of factory it is. There's an import space that lets you use your nation's treasury to import more of those forces. There's a maneuver space, and that's the space that allows you to move those forces out to either take more territory or perform uh, the, the combat in the game. And then there's two special spots. Uh, one's called taxation, and one's called investor. Uh, the taxation space is sort of the space that allows you to score the points in the game um, when you go to that space, you tally up the factories and the territory that that nation has, and it scores uh, on the point track and gets some cash back into the treasury. And then the investment space um, both will, A, cause that treasury to pay out to the players who have bonds in the nation, and it also activates the investor card if you're using the investor card, which a lot of people do. And uh, that allows you to buy more bonds in a given nation. Well, thanks for that overview of the Rondell, because, uh, you know, that's kind of the heart of the game. It's kind of funny because all of Matt Gertz's games sort of share this in common. You know, there's usually this little, you know, like two and a half, three inch kind of wheel uh, on the board and everybody is really completely concerned with that wheel because that's kind of all of your choices and uh, you also alluded to something else which I find really interesting about Matt Gertz's designs with the rondelle which is that uh, the, his games tend to have what are a lot of people call micro turns you know you you kind of move your piece uh, let's say you're playing Great Britain and you move your piece to maneuver 
and you move your three ships one space because basically you can uh in general you can move like one adjacent area when you select maneuver uh although you can kind of do what's called a convoy which is an interesting way to move some of your uh pieces as well in particular your land forces of course um but in general movement's really simple so it's like okay i select maneuver i move this ship here this ship here this ship here done Right. And then, you know, your next turn is like, okay, I select produce. I'm going to make a ship here. I'm going to make an army here. And I'm going to make an army here. Done. Um, and so the turns are really snappy. And it, it, you know, the game really moves. It's like one of the things that I love about Matt Gertz designs is that because the decisions can sometimes be tough. Like, where do I want to go on the wheel? But once you go there, you're done in a matter of usually, you know, anywhere I'd say between a few seconds and a minute. And so the, the game moves along at a very brisk pace, which is something that I've really appreciated about uh, his designs as well. So, um, you know, as you described, you have this sort of pre-World War One sort of European map, and you have your major players of Germany, uh, Russia, Austria, Hungary, Italy, France, and England. Um, I think that's all of them. Yeah, I can't. Yep. I don't think I've left anybody out. And so, you know, as players invest and take control of these countries, they're going to use those countries' resources in order to build up their kind of military presence and then try to expand. And there's some kind of areas on the board that are kind of ripe for expanding. There's lots of sea zones that are going to kind of give you more areas to control. And then there's kind of the whole Balklands region, unfortunately, which, as, you know, as history has told us, gets fought over quite a bit. And that's a whole kind of a, almost like a neutral area that anybody can kind of invade. And right. the reason you want to do this is because you're going to increase your taxation, right? Your taxation is based upon the number of regions that are under your control, you know, both land and sea regions. And as you said, since this is really primarily what moves you up on this kind of like little score track, which helps determine sort of the value of your country uh, that you are controlling at that moment, uh, might not be your country in the long run, uh, right. this is really, really crucially important. And so a lot of times you're just kind of like taking over territory just to increase your taxation potential so that you can move up on this track. Because this is a track where you only move up if you exceed what you previously kind of had had done. Like that's kind of when you get to move up and get some bonuses. And, you know, there's all kinds of incentives for you to be aggressive in this game, which is unusual for a Euro game, right? Absolutely. And, I mean, it really is an unusual game for the style. Uh, my first Matt Gertz game uh, wasn't Antique. It was a Navigador, uh, another uh, Rondo yeah, game. That's a good one. Um, and, and, a, and a great game. And I love the market in Navigador, especially. Um, but it's much more, you know, explore, build your resources, that kind of thing, where this game feels almost like they kind of mashed 1830 and diplomacy in, you know, two games known for their kind gameplay. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and the result is a, is pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's also uh, fascinating to me because, you know, this is a game, uh, when I started off kind of talking about it after you had given your introduction, I said it kind of, when I first saw it, it reminded me of Risk, right? And right. Risk is a game where you're building up your forces, you're building up your forces, you're taking over territory, and you're going to have like this one big kind of conflict towards the end of the game to see who's the last person standing, right? So it's kind of a, a, a classic American-style 
player elimination, bash each other over the head kind of a game, right? Imperial is such a different animal because on the one hand, it encourages you to expand. You really have to expand in order to do well uh, mm-hmm. for a particular country so that you can earn some money, so that you can you know, uh, make that country more profitable, encourage more people to invest in it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, gradually get them to pay out um, uh, using the, uh, um, you know, using that investor space on the rondelle. Right. So if I've got, you know, uh, 50% of the shares in Germany, then I'm going to get half of the revenue when Germany pays out. And this is going to be good for me, right? Absolutely. Now, the, the thing that's interesting, though, is that on the one hand, the game pushes you to expand pushes you to be aggressive on the other hand when you do your taxation which is such an important part of the game um, as you said you count up all the areas that you kind of control and that's going to give you your revenue but you have to subtract revenue for every military piece that you have on the board so for every army and every navy you're actually losing tax revenue and to me, like the defining moment for me, which I've talked about before um, uh, when I've talked about this game, but you know, this is perfect because it's actually the Imperial episode finally. <laughs> the, the moment for me where I kind of looked and said, my God, this is such a different game, was I was playing uh, Great Britain and uh, my buddy Lloyd was playing Germany. And we kind of had this sort of very tense kind of balance of power in the North Sea, as you can imagine. If you play the game, the North Sea and the English Channel and all this, is, this, is, this is kind of the borderland here between Germany and Great Britain. Definitely. And so I had my fleets kind of build up, and he had his fleets build up, and we were kind of staring at each other. He was expanding into Scandinavia. I was expanding around towards Spain and trying to keep an eye on him to make sure he didn't get too frisky. So after a few rounds of this and, and building up our fleets and kind of having this, this stare-down contest, I, it finally occurred to me after going through taxation, I was just like, you know what? I'm losing tons of money. And so I looked at Lloyd and I said, hey, you want to reduce our tax burden a little bit? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, why don't we fight? I said, we'll fight. And at the end, if I calculate this right, because in Imperial, the, the uh, combat is entirely deterministic, okay? Right. It's like a one-for-one one kind of a thing. When we're done, you know, I'll have two ships and you'll have one. And I'll move this ship over here to show you my goodwill. We'll be left with one apiece instead of four apiece. We'll have reduced our tax burden. We'll both make out on this deal. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And so he attacked me. <laughs> we had this battle. We blew up all of our fleets. And yet we were both happy about it because we actually increased the profitability of our nations by doing this. And that was where I really got that first kind of feel of the, the, the sort of idea behind the game that you're sort of like the puppet master. And, I mean, there was a part of me that was like, wow, I just sent all those guys off to die so that I could make a few bucks. And it was it was a weird moment in the game where I was kind of like both like a little bit repulsed at what I had just done and also like totally happy because I was like, wow, this is really the heart of this game. It's not about having that big final battle. It's about managing these countries, keeping, you know, delicate alliances, keeping a balance of power 
making peace with each other and then stabbing each other in the back. And that's what really kind of attracted me to the game. Um, what was your kind of aha moment with this game if you had one? So, yeah, actually, the first time we ever played it, um, you know, there's the, the quick setup to the game as opposed to the advanced setup. Right. Um, where you just have a sort of a predetermined allotment of bonds when you start the game. And we played a six-player game, and everybody more or less hung on to the same country for the duration of the game. And we played it as sort of a light, um, almost like a risk-ish game. And I did a uh, session report and posted it in the Imperial forums on BGG. <laughs> <laughs> and I was immediately, uh, you know told that oh that's awfully cute but you just completely played the game <laughs> not according to its spirit and uh we started playing it uh with the advanced setup where you sort of choose um how much you're going to invest in different countries and that can give you some more flexibility throughout the game and that sort of instructed us to start um you know essentially behaving like the worst investors imaginable uh right, right. just where, real terrible you know, human beings yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you you know if you, you you essentially yeah we'll build up a nation only to have someone else kind of buy it out from underneath you and then you'll buy into another nation and trash the nation you had previously and absolutely destroy any armies and fleets just so that you can enrich yourself um by using the uh the investment space later uh and that was sort of our uh, <laughs> our evolution into uh, into more uh, advanced imperial players. Yeah, you know, and it's 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 so fascinating because your story is is such a common one. Like when I teach the game, everybody, I, you know, I think people are so used. Unless you've played eighteen XX games, everybody right. is used to being a like I'm red. It's like you know I'm England. I'm red. No, no, you're not. You're England now. <laughs> You might be France later, you know. Um, you could be Russia by the end of the game. And it's so hard for people sometimes to wrap their mind around. It doesn't surprise me that, you know, a first-time group of players sitting down is going to play it very straight like that, you know, where right. it's like this is my country and we're going to see who does the best because that's kind of typical for our hobby. Whereas here, as in 18xx games, there's that kind of idea of I'm going to build it up and when things start to go bad, I'm going to get out of Dodge and I'm going to take as much money as I can when I do it. Right. Like the golden parachute effect. Absolutely. Uh, you know, or I'm going to, you know, totally uh, begin investing in this, this company over here or this country in this case over here, because man, she's doing a really good job building this, this nation up. And this is a comer. I think, Italy is going to be in a really strong position in about you know six rounds of that rondelle, and I, I want to get in on that. So when it comes my turn to invest, I might surprise people. I'm not investing in Germany. I'm investing in Italy. Why is he investing in Italy? And so, like you said, you have this, this wonderful kind of dynamic uh, where you are kind of being a terrible person, but it's this wonderful <laughs> dynamic where you're you know building things up. You're kind of milking them while you can. You're leaving them for dead, and sometimes you're completely burning the house down as you leave like i don't know how many times you know as i'm looking to get out of a country uh because it's not moving up the taxation chart enough and so it's not going to be one of the top countries as i'm kind of estimating you know where are they going to be because once somebody kind of hits the the barrier on the score chart the game's over 
and then you're going right. to sort of assess where each country ended as far as its value goes, right? Uh, it seems odd to talk about a country and its value, but you can think of it as like the country's credit rating, basically. I think that's kind of what they call it, uh, actually, in the game. And if you're, you know, so far along, it's basically, you know, one time your score, and then it doubles, and then it can triple. And so right. if I've decided that Germany is just not going to make it, I might just say, you know what? I, man, I'm, I'm just going to pay this thing out over and over. I'm going to totally deplete the treasury. I'm going to build it up. I'm going to spend some money while I'm at it to make them a threat. And then I'm going to leave them there for someone else to deal with while I go off on the other side of, of the world. And, and you know, I'm going to go and, and start messing with Italy now. And so there's this really interesting kind of interplay. And there's all kinds of options for how to invest, how to get out, and what state you want to leave things in when you go. Right. Um, and can, if can you're determine. lucky, maybe, you know, have someone else buy in while you're on your way out. And uh, then, you know, you've done an excellent job. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that, absolutely. There was uh, someone in the forums once wrote that uh, Imperial is all about uh, having the right bonds at the right time. And I think that that's a really good way to put it. You know, you want to have a good paying out bond while it's on its way up and you want to have that in all of the countries as they're on their way up. Cause the map's so tight, no one's going to be on top forever. No. Yeah. That's an excellent point too. There is not room enough, you know, as, as we were talking earlier and talking about sort of like the neutral areas, like I think Spain, uh, yeah. Morocco, these are kind of like neutral areas, the Balkans. They're, they're just available for countries to go and take over. But eventually you run out of room. And so there's going to be some jockeying. There's going to be some conflict for those limited space resources, if you want to call them that, so that you can go and increase the, you know, your, your country's taxation base, which is going to increase your country's value. So all of these things, you know, as you said, make for that kind of feel of a, of a you know, a knife fight in a phone booth, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, really tight. Um, so, you know, these are the things that kind of make this game really kind of wholly unique, at least, uh, you know, in, in my experience. Now, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because you've played this game so much, is there are so many different kind of house rules and variants and so many different ways to play this game other than what, you know, was written in the box. Like we have right. we have this this very troublesome investor card. And the investor card is is something that's in the game that basically is going to allow players to invest in a country using their own personal cash. You can't use the country's cash. You have to use your right. own. And what you're going to do is anytime somebody passes over, they don't even have to select investor. But every time uh, one of the, the pieces for uh, a country passes over that investor space on the rondelle or lands on it, somebody's going to have the opportunity to buy some stock and then the investor card moves. And so this investor card is going to make its way around the table in the same way for those familiar maybe with Navigador, uh, you have that, uh, that, that sort of favor card that kind of rotates around the table as well. And right. so, you know, some people love this and some people hate it. Uh, some say it's too restrictive. Some say, well, it's got to be restrictive or the game doesn't work. And so I'm kind of curious what you think of the investor card. So I think that the investor card is definitely the best way to play it with newer players. 
And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one thing is that it injects cash into the game. Whoever holds the investor card when it's activated gets, um, is it 2 million pounds? 2 million, I yeah. Think. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We always say two bucks, but um, they get more cash, which allows them to, with more cash in the game, you're going to have maybe a more dynamic game uh people are able to do more um you're gonna have those sort of exciting like uh changes of fortune where all of a sudden somebody is you know the new master of austria hungary that kind of thing um (laughs) and it also sort of lets you kind of think about you know getting your things together you're gonna have a limited chance to invest so you want to make sure that you're gonna have some money by the time it comes around to you that kind of thing and especially with a with a four-player game um that investor card is going to be flying around the table a lot of the time. So it's not like you're never going to get a chance to invest. You definitely will. Um, I think as I play it more, and admittedly I haven't done this much, I think I'm starting to lean towards the no investor variant. Um, I think it's definitely a better variant for people with experience in the game because you're not going to get that uh, injection of 2 million pounds anymore. Um it allows people to invest on every turn, um, which you wouldn't want people who uh, haven't played a lot have to think about that every turn, I think. But I haven't played enough without the investor card to really decide. How about you? You know, I'm still playing with the investor card. Um, and, and the reason for that, and, and this is despite playing this game a lot, is because that's kind of, you know, to me... That those were the rules that I read in the box, sure. And that's the way I was going to play it because I was going to play it the way it was intended. I'm always a little leery of house rules, and, and I'm a little leery of variants, even, uh, even when designers put variants in there, because, you know, I, I think a lot of times variants. So, I don't know. It. I've played some really excellent variants, but a lot of times I feel like it's just there to kind of like appease people but if you ask the designer themselves my suspicion is most of the time they envision the game being played the way they envision the game and somebody a play tester somebody gave them feedback and said you know what you don't need this thing and you know the designer probably pushed back on that i've dealt with a few designers and worked with some designers and there's probably some pushback and then, you know, either the designer themselves or the publisher was probably kind of like, you know what, just put it in there as a variant. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it's like that's kind <laughs> of how I envision that conversation going. I would well, love to kind of find out from uh, Matt Gertz, and maybe he's posted somewhere in the forums that I haven't that, read about. Uh, that's what I was about to say. In this case, we actually don't have to wonder um, because um, some years ago he did an interview, and I think he also did post in the forums somewhat. So – the original version of the game was without the investor card. Oh, interesting. But over playtesting, they decided to include the investor card. Um, and it seems to me that when the fans have uh, sort of pressed him, he says that both versions are equally valid. <laughs> nice. Okay. So there so you he's, go. Yeah. He's not helping us at all. Thanks a lot, Mac. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not th- helping us I, at all. Like I say, I think I really think that with the investor card is is a great way to play, and it's the way that I played it the most. I think I've got what 19 games of Imperial recorded anyway, plus some. Uh, pushing pieces around on my own sometimes. Um, so it's a great way to play for sure. But I think that I would like to explore the non-investor card variant just because you get so many more chances to invest. I think I'm curious to see what that's like. 
And I, you know, I have played, uh, I'll answer your question now. Um, I have played without the investor card maybe once or twice um, at the urging of other people at the table. Sure. And I will say it definitely opened things up in exactly the way you describe, you know, um, and and it made it so that you didn't have that frustration sometimes of waiting for that investor card to kind of come around to you and have the opportunity to invest. But at the same time, I kind of always looked at that as almost like a, a lot of my long-term planning, you know, was involved in trying to time it as you had talked about, you know, I want to make sure I have enough money because I want to buy the five share of this Absolutely. country. You know, I want to upgrade from the three to the five and therefore I'm going to need this much money. And if I do this and this on the rondelle, uh, you know, she's probably going to pass here and then he's going to pass there and I'll have the card in time with the money and boom, all my plans will come together. And, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, do, do the, the, you know, the evil hand thing. Mwahaha. You know, I kind of, <laughs> I, I, I get that feeling, you know, with the investor card, whereas without the investor card, it's almost like a little more wild west for me. It's like I can't predict as well. Like I can't plan as well. Um, you know, I, I can try to kind of keep track of people's money and see, all right, but I, I find that I'm surprised a lot more. Um, you know, the couple of times that I tried that and, and that's kind of why I ended up shying away from it. It's like, you know, I'd rather just play it this way. Now there's going to be a lot of people who are going to disagree with that. Um, I know that for a fact, but to me, I liked, I kind of felt like it was more long-term planning on my part. Sure. With the investor card than without it. Without the investor card, things were much more unstable. Now, a lot of people would view that as more exciting. But to me, I kind of felt it made the game almost more tactical. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. But what it do does you think? Make sense. Absolutely. Um, I would only wonder that without the investor card, people could easily solidify their holding in one country because they'd get the first shot at it. I wondered if it wouldn't move not or ownership wouldn't move nearly as much, at least in the early part of the game. But like I say, my experience without the investor card is pretty limited so far. So um, I'd still like to look into it more. But I, I like I like investing. And, and, you know, you can never sell your shares or your bonds in Imperial. So I thought maybe more chances to invest would be an interesting thing to explore moving forward with the game. Well, absolutely. I, I think you're right about that because it's going to allow you to diversify your portfolio a little more. And I think right. what's going to happen is, you know, my my very limited experience playing without it is, is kind of that idea that the scores were a lot closer because everybody got to get a piece of something. Sure. And so, you know, that that kind of made it a little more tense in that respect. But to me, again, that tenseness is almost false because the only reason that maybe the scores were that close was because everybody had a lot more opportunities to throw money into many different countries. Whereas when I'm only seeing that card, that, that, that investment opportunity X number of times a game, then the decisions that I'm making are much more kind of crucial than when I have the ability to just kind of, well, you know, I got a little extra cash. Italy's looking like they're going to finish strong. Let me just get something, you know, I'm going to get something oh, that will improve absolutely. my score. And I think that, and I've played many a game where that kind of tactical kind of investing has really come to, uh, you know, bite me in the end. Uh, I've looked at a <laughs> looked at a veritable cornucopia of bonds in front of me as I was, you know, finishing fourth place and wondered where, where I went, where I turned wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and the game is is great for that, you know, because there are these um in my mind, uh, Imperial is a game that has very clear and memorable tipping points where suddenly this country, you know, France that has been a dog for the whole first third of the game, yep, is now positioned to make a move. Um, you know, Germany just beat the snot out of the UK. They're weak. Their naval forces are weak. Uh, you know, uh, France now has a decent navy. We can seize control of territory there. Italy just pulled out of Morocco because they're trying to deal with Russia. And so now all of a sudden, you know, France is a comer. And they're going to, you know, make a move and they're going to end up being, you know, this kind of powerhouse for a while. And so those kinds of swings of fortune, those tipping points, I find really, really fun because of two reasons. Number one, it's fun when you can kind of get on the ground floor of that and you can predict it. Like when when you can look at the board and say, okay, I think there's going to be an opportunity here and I'm going to kind of quietly get this started. Um, and it's also fun to jump on the bandwagon <laughs> right. once somebody else has done the heavy lifting, right? Absolutely. So, you know, well, and isn't being, that – that's just one of the great feelings in Imperial when someone has done such a beautiful job and they're about to move in the taxation space and then you have the investor card yeah, and yeah. It, it, it gets activated, <laughs> you buy out control, and then you take their nation to taxation, collect the bonus um, – <laughs> that's that's always one of the many joys of imperial right there like <laughs> absolutely i would agree with that 100 percent. that's for sure so all right so we, we talked a little bit about the the investor card that's like always lurking in the background anytime there's any discussion of imperial sure uh, people there, feel there very strongly absolutely um there are people who uh, you know i have read about i haven't known anybody actually who's done this but you know people who say that this theme that we're talking about this idea of being this sort of cabal in the background manipulating world affairs is is like distasteful to them and they won't play this game um and i'm curious like if if you've ever had any negative reactions to the theme of the game and what the game is asking you to do amongst the players that you've introduced it to I have actually, um, not until recently, and the the biggest pushback I've gotten on Imperial has actually come from the historical war gamers that I play with, um, because they feel the game is you know sort of patently ahistorical, and that the sort of this idea of these you know powerful banking families pulling all the strings to the detriment of everybody is is a sort of a preposterous uh, theme to hang the game's uh, mechanisms on. Um, My personal feeling is that it's sort of a fun role-playing experience that I don't think really uh, is in reality anywhere. And um, I believe I read an interview with Matt Gertz where he essentially said the same, where it's just, you know, he said, I believe he called it delightfully cynical. I That's a great about, way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I haven't had any pushback um, from playing it, but I have read, you know, where people have kind of complained about it. And, and it's interesting that your pushback is coming from a, a more historical kind of standpoint. Like this isn't, you know, there is no Illuminati. <laughs> there is no, right. you know, there is no secret group that's running the world, you know. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I kind of thought the theme was really interesting because, you know, when you look at houses like you know morgan and rothschild and and some of these you know these large kind of institutions and banks uh you know do i think that they made all the decisions for you know the countries that we're talking about absolutely not but to say that they you know had no influence and that war profiteering is not something that historically happened i think is patently false as well you know um, I, I think that that kind of thing did go on. Did those individuals run the countries? Did they make the decisions to go to war? I seriously doubt it. I think that that is kind of just kind of a, a fanciful kind of a thing and a way to kind of make the game work. But, uh, you know, I, I do kind of feel that connection to that whole notion of kind of war profiteering and being opportunistic in general. You know, th this idea of, all right, uh, you know, we're, we're going to take advantage of a expansionist kind of country and the mood of the country, and we're going to profit from that. I mean, you know, there, there's no doubt that the United States, for example, entering World War II and kicking into a wartime economy was hugely helpful for the United States. I mean, it, it, it's one of the primary things that got us out of the Great Depression. Um, you know, all of a sudden, all of our production is is going full uh, you know, full bore, and everybody's working, and all kinds of stimulus to the economy uh, because of that. So, is that war profiteering? You know, I, I don't know that I would call it that, but sure. there's no doubt that conflict stimulates the economy. Um, you know, and and it can also crush an economy, which is another interesting thing that I think is modeled in the game very well. I mean, you can. You can have that sort of arms race that the United States and the Soviet Union were kind of engaged in. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is, uh, you know, historically, in, to some degree, the United States kind of spent the Soviet Union into bankruptcy. You know, the, the Soviets trying to keep up with our kind of military industrial developments and complex and missiles and all of that um, was not something that their economy was really robust enough to handle. And, you know, we were willing to spend uh, into deficit in order to continue that. And so we armed ourselves so much that, you know, we ended up hurting both of our countries uh, from an economic standpoint. You know, we're not going to talk about a geopolitic kind of thing. But from an economic standpoint, it's clear that both of our countries were harmed by that. Well, Imperial models that as well. Because you can, as I described earlier, have this wonderful, huge hedgehog of, you know, a country that's just surrounded by fleets and lots of armies. And, you know, no one's going to mess with you. You are going to be in control of, you know, these sea regions and these land regions. But you're not going to make any money. Your country's right. economy is basically going to feeding your military. And therefore... It's actually not a good path. And so I kind of think that the game does a really interesting job of portraying both of those things. Would you agree with any of that or you think I'm off base? No, I think I don't know how intentional it is, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, doing something like a massive arms buildup in 
Imperial is, uh, it's, it's not a very viable strategy for you as an investor because you're not going to be able to uh, fill that treasury with money that then you can then deplete <laughs> later to your benefit. <laughs> right. um, but I think ultimately the game is showing, um, they're, they're taking that kind of rail baroning manipulation that you get out of something like an 18xx game and putting it onto this sort of risk or diplomacy theme um i think it's neat i think it's a fun thing to play around with um and but you're right i think it does at least uh abstractly uh sort of demonstrate some real world dynamics that do do occur all right, so we've spent a good time talking about the theme here a little bit, and uh, we've certainly covered kind of the, the mechanisms of the game and some of the things that make the game special. Um, what are some things, however, that maybe you don't like about Imperial or some things that you wish were you know different? Or you know, are, are there any things about this game that, that maybe don't rub you exactly the right way? No. No, I'm, just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of kidding. Um, for me, I don't really have, uh, I don't have any complaints about Imperial. I really do love the game. Some of the complaints I've run into are either, um, some of those, uh, thematic disagreements that people have with the game. They just don't find it, uh, either they don't find it believable or they actually find it kind of disturbing. Um, the other thing that I think I see people running into is that they just have a hard time wrapping their heads around the kind of mindset you need to be in um, to play the game. So the idea of, you know, building up one nation and taking territory and then just dumping it in favor of another nation, or even more strange for some people is the idea of not controlling any nation at all for some of the game. I've seen some people end up in that situation. Um, I use the Swiss bank um, tokens that some people don't, but I do. Um, I've seen some people really flounder as a Swiss bank player in this game. So I guess that's not ideal, but I think the Swiss bank is interesting enough that I wouldn't want to play without it. Can you maybe describe a little bit about what you're talking about with this sure. Swiss bank and the Swiss bank tokens? Absolutely. So it can happen in the game that you don't, you're no longer the majority bondholder of any one of the nations in the game. And so you were given um, a Swiss bank token so you are no longer taking turns on the rondel. You're sort of an observer to the proceedings at this point. However, uh, whenever that investment card is activated, you always have a chance to invest, whether you hold it or not, as long as you remain a Swiss bank. So it's a real strong investment position at that point. And, you know, I've seen it used really, really effectively to get a player kind of back in the game. Like, I, I remember playing one game and uh, watching one of the players basically encourage another player to take over a country so that they could become that sort of Swiss banker, right? Only right. for the purpose of trying to get the more opportunities to get bonds in other countries which were doing very well. And so... I think this is a really interesting strategy, but it only seems viable to me or important to me if you're playing with the investor card. If you're not playing with the investor card, then it kind of doesn't work. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure if it doesn't work or not. You're still in an interesting position because without the investor card, you can only invest in that country's turn or in the country whose turn 
is is happening currently. Right, uh, right. And then when you have the Swiss bank, you have the option to invest in any country around the table um, with that variant. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I don't see it for, I think, what you're talking about, where either you have a lot of money or there's a lot of um, kind of uh, low-cost, high-yield bonds still available. That's that's really when the Swiss bank can, can kind of clean up mid-game for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Because as you mentioned earlier, one of the things that that is interesting about the game is unlike some other games, you know, we've talked about 18xx games, you can't like dump stock, right? The bonds that you have, you have, but you can upgrade. And so what happens is in about the midpoint of the game, people are taking those low stocks that they kind of started the game with, the bonds, I should say, that they started the game with, uh, the ones, the twos, the threes, what have you, and they're upgrading those, right, to the fours, the fives, the sixes. And when you do that, you're returning the smaller stock to the portfolio. Right. So if I upgrade the two to the four, okay, I pay the difference in value between the two and the four. I take the four, I put back the two. And so as you said, what this does is this opens the door for some relatively low cost to you as that sort of Swiss bank player, um, opportunities to kind of get in on a country and get a foothold. And then that might allow you to then be uh, take a more aggressive stance with that country later because now you're not looking at, oh, well, geez, I got to buy the six share to wrest control of this country. Well, no, I can buy the two, all right? And I've got some, you know, other things that are going to be paying out soon. I can kind of see. Then I'll have more money. Now I only got to, you know, I, I, I still got to get the six share, but now I'm only talking about paying the difference between the two and the six. Is that, you, you see what I'm saying there, right? It, it actually gives you that Absolutely. foothold that puts you in a closer strike position for later in the game, which I, I've seen people use to their advantage. So um, you found that it, you can be a, a successful player without controlling some countries for a while, yes? For a while, yeah. I think you definitely need to get back in control of a nation at some point. It's just going to allow you to sort of uh, manipulate, you know, to make sure that your bonds are the best bonds and that other bonds are not the best bonds. Right, um, right. But for a while, yeah, you definitely uh, you can you can use that Swiss bank position uh, really effectively. Well, thanks for kind of reviewing that and kind of going over that for people who might not be familiar, um, you know, with with uh, that kind of idea. And it is an odd idea, especially for people who haven't played this game or games like this before. This notion of, well, I don't have any turns. And I've seen people react really negatively to that. You know, they kind of sit back in the chair, the arms go folded across the chest, and, you know, like, well, I'm out. And it's like, no, no, you're not out, you know. And and you you almost have to talk a new player through that. It's like, no, you're not out. Actually, you're in a little bit of a unique position. But I like what you said, which is you don't want to stay there forever, you know. You want to take advantage of this opportunity. It seems like a setback. You know, but you're going to have the opportunity very soon to be able to kind of make a splash somewhere else and then rest control and get right back into the fight. And so, you know, it it can be a hard sell for new players who feel like they've somehow failed or lost, but it actually can turn to your advantage if you play it right. All right. So 
we've kind of covered what happens when you don't control anything. You said you don't really have any problems, uh, any serious problems with Imperial. So let me ask you this question. We're going to go a little far afield on this, Matt. Why Imperial 2030? Sure. Why Imperial 2030? Yes, yeah, like why? Like if Imperial I, is as good I, as I think it is and you think it is, oh, what's up with Imperial 2030? Right. What's up with that? You know, that's that that's a, that's a great question. I'm probably going to uh, attract the ire of the Imperial 2030 enthusiasts out there because they are out there without yes, a doubt. Yes, they are. Uh, Absolutely, I, yeah. It, it has happened to me where I've proposed an Imperial game and someone is immediately like, Oh, but let's do 2030 instead. Um, I, I, I guess the the thematic update might be enticing for some people. Um, I haven't played Imperial 2030 enough to really understand the differences as as, as well as I should. It feels like it's it's kind of a a, a tighter cash game than the original okay. Imperial. I, I'm not sure that that I enjoy that. Um, but again, you know, without a handful of plays at least it's it, it's tough to say but yeah uh I, i'm with you i think on that one where i just i'm not quite sure um i guess i'm not quite sure why we need 2030 as well sorry 2030 fans yeah yeah <laughs> and you know i'm sure both of us will will get a little bit of hate for that I, i've never played 2030 which sure. is why i wanted to ask you because i was kind of curious you know what the big deal was like um every year at con uh, con in stamford connecticut lovely little convention that they have in the spring every year um joe gola is there and he loves playing 2030 you know that that's that's his preferred imperial and you know i know that the the board is different i think there's more sea zones if i'm not mistaken it's kind of an expanded that's board correct. i believe you got north and south america in there now um, and so it's more of kind of like a global feel than, you know, regular Imperial, which is, as you said, that sort of pre-World War I uh, kind of map of Europe. Um, so, you know, without having played it, I can't really, you know, obviously speak intelligently about it. But I never found anything wanting in Imperial, which made me want to check out or get 2030, I guess is, is kind of my point. And so I was curious, and I think it'd be great to open it up to anybody who's listening to the podcast who might have some more experience with uh, that game and maybe could, uh, in, in the forums, you know, when we post this, Matt, maybe be able to kind of delineate or talk about, you know, why they prefer that or, or what the, the big deal is about it. Because it's very clear to me that, you know, there's a lot of people who really prefer this kind of up updated version and i'm kind of stubbornly kind of clinging to my old imperial like nope i'm like the grumpy old man I was like, there's nothing wrong with it <laughs> it's been good you know it's like it's like i'm the dude yeah. who's still driving the dodge dart you know like and and i'm not talking the <laughs> new dart i'm talking about the slant six dart i'm the oh, guy yeah, who's yeah. driving that one you know uh <laughs> and i'm just like nope there's nothing wrong with it it runs fine you know it's it stalls sometimes but you know I love it. And, you know, everybody else around me is like, oh, no, man, you got to get this new thing. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. So, you know, maybe it's just me being uh, persnickety, but uh, I've always loved Imperial and, and so have never kind of uh, chosen to go and, and check out and see, you know, what 2030 is all about. So uh, thanks for giving me at least a little bit of uh, insight there as to maybe why people uh, like it more, a little bit tighter cash economy. Um, I kind of feel Imperial's fairly tight as it is so I, I don't always have all the money to do all that i want so to me that's tight <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, it's kind of like Agricola, you know, I, right. I, I'm never going to be able to do all the things I want. So therefore it's not enough for me. It feels tight. So I don't know that I would want it more restrictive, um, but you know, that, that could just be me. So, well, I'd be curious to see what people have to say. Absolutely. Sell me on Imperial 2030. I, uh, I love Imperial, and I'd be uh, happy to have uh, uh, an excuse to get more Imperial. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So really, life, we're just so. we're, we're just looking for people to justify another purchase for us. Is really what it's all about, yeah, right? <laughs> you, you could you could say that, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but honey. Honey, they said it was totally different. But this guy on the computer. (laughs) (laughs) The guy on the internet said I should get it. You got it, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the way it is. It never doesn't work. No, no, it doesn't, yeah. (laughs) Now, that's that's, that's one of the other things. It's like, okay, so I have Imperial, and it's like, do I need to buy another version of Imperial? Um, when I've already got Imperial sent on my show, and I, I always bypass it. Like I, I never have pulled the trigger on it. So, uh, maybe I'll have the chance to play it one of these days. Well, you know, Matt, uh, we've, we've, you know, covered a lot of ground here talking about Imperial, but I don't want to leave the discussion behind, uh, until, you know, you kind of feel you've had a chance to share what you want to say about this classic game. And I, I don't think there's any doubt that it's classic. It's been around a long time. It has a really devoted following and is a rather unique game experience. So is there anything else that you kind of wanted to cover or touch base about uh, with regards to Imperial? I think that we've hit everything that's um, key for anybody who's curious about Imperial. I would say um, try the game. I think it appeals to a lot of different groups. And I would also say that if you become curious about it, you know, dig into those board game geek forums because there's a lot of interesting discussion about how the game can be played and how to sort of, you know, improve your own game of Imperial or at least get your head into that, you know, decision space of like, how do I see when a country is rising and get on, on the ground floor? What do I do to stop a country from, uh, you know, taking over the game? All these sort of uh, meaty decisions that uh, I think Imperial really rewards us with. Well, thanks for uh, you know that tip to go and check out the forums because you know I think that this might be a case where you're right. You know, a lot of times I actively discourage people from going and looking at strategy articles or reading in forums because I kind of feel like, well, you know, you you need to explore the game by yourself. But if you're new to the hobby or or you know you're new to this kind of style of game, I think you're right that just to kind of get your head in the space, like to get you to understand who you are and what you're trying to do in the game is going to be something that you know it might help if you had a little bit of guidance because a lot of times you know people will ask me like well you know what should I have done or you know how should I approach this and you know the only thing that I that I consistently say to people is you are not a country and you can't be wedded to any country like don't don't get yourself caught up emotionally which sounds weird to say you know we're talking about a board game but people do people get invested if that's exactly how i would describe it too where you know people just decide early on that i'm going to be russia and they just do everything in their power to not give that up and it's uh it's not it's not the way to approach this one no it rarely rarely works out for you if you do because you know if you're with a group of savvy players they're going to they're going to actually be able to use that to their advantage. And they're also going to manipulate you uh, 
um, into making some suboptimal kind of decisions by threatening you, you know, Absolutely. Uh, yep. directly or verbally. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the only thing that I would that I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit about this game, uh, Matt, before we leave it behind, is that this is a game that I feel can sometimes be fragile. And what I mean by that is I have played this game with all kinds of people, new gamers, experienced gamers, war gamers, you know, all kinds of different players. But I've also played it with kind of like a player who is just playing sort of, you know, randomly. Sure. And, you know, I can think of one incident in particular. I was playing uh, the game at my uh, uh, friendly local game store and we had a, a gentleman who was playing that night and just thought it was hilarious to just kind of, he was like, I'm going to be Italy and I'm just going to build up. And he built up this enormous, you know, fleet and this enormous, and we're kind of trying to tell him, we're like, look, all right, you know, this isn't risk. And yeah, this is going to work for you for a while. You're going to go, you're going to kind of smack some people around because he was just laughing and having so much fun taking territory from everybody and invading and, um, you know, doing all this. And, and we're saying to him, but you, you're not really making any money here. This isn't really going to work for you long term. You know we're going to all kind of collectively now as the table, we're going to have to smack you down. And when we do it, you know, you're going to be kind, you, you will have kind of wasted almost a quarter of the game understand that that's what's going to happen sure and he just didn't care he thought it was fun and for him it was fun and so that's great and you know good for him uh it, it kind of like it it we i think as a group we got a little satisfaction in making everything that i said true that's <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly what happened to him and you know that the game went on and 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 whatnot but I have found that if you have kind of a like a loose cannon of a player in Imperial, it can kind of derail it a little bit. Like it, it it'll sidetrack the table in having to deal with that player. Now, sure. some people would look at that and say, well, that's not a flaw, that's a feature, because now you're kind of having a totally different experience and you're maybe getting a little bit of feel for what it's like to deal with a rogue nation, you know, <laughs> in the <laughs> middle of this orderly European world where we're going to fight in a civilized fashion right, and, right. and, you know, maximize our profits. Uh, and then other people like me are kind of like, oh, yeah, but it's like, oh, man, I, I've spent a quarter of the game making my point that this is not what you want to do. And I'm not the kind of guy that's going to get satisfaction from looking at this person and saying, see, I told you. Right. It's, it's just like, okay, here we go. And, you know, the, the, the game evolved and overextended himself, bankrupted the country, um, you know, had no money, couldn't invest in anything else. We bought the country out from under him. We kind of put the house in order. We made a lot of money. He didn't really make anything because he couldn't take advantage of it because he had no res and, and so like it was kind of like, all right, lesson learned, I hope, but it it was kind of like a it was like a side road that I don't think any of us wanted to take. Have you ever had that experience? I am fortunate to say that i I can't think of anything that 
bad. I did have a game where um, someone did sort of the investment strategy in the uh, setup part of the game, and they were never able to get back into the game. They remained uh, okay. the Swiss bank player for the duration of the game. They did not take a single turn during the game. Um, Yikes. Yeah, yeah, it was a rough one. Um, but I think you're right that maybe there's a lesson to be learned there. And also, I think that if we're going to take an interest in these economic games, and especially not just like kind of snowball engine games, but a game where it's a sort of a player-driven economy and something that might have been very good in the previous game might not be so good in this game um these sort of player driven systems it can happen sometimes where someone's just going to have a bad game or someone's going to make the game very strange um due to sort of not playing i don't want to say in the spirit of the game but but not not playing optimally or even you know maybe it sounds like in the Italian build-up, not, <laughs> not even close to optimally. So. No, no, no. No, not at all. But, uh, yeah, yeah, he kept referring to himself as the Mad King. Um, so, you know, so, I yeah. think the Swiss bank player didn't necessarily have a bad time. I think they were actually sort of interested to see how things fold, unfolded throughout the game, which that's not for everybody. Um, no, all, no. But, uh, but, yeah, I think... I, I can definitely see the point about the fragility of the system. I don't think it happens that often, though. I think it's it's pretty robust game. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I would say that you know those experiences have been very few and far between. But it it was something that I thought that that bore mentioning because you know everybody does approach a game differently, and there is a, a kind of as you said with any kind of a player driven economy. You know, I think about games like Container. Sure. Um, you know, anytime where kind of the players, the table, is kind of, you know, we're all kind of in this space together, and we kind of have. Uh, a sort of a, I don't want to say an understanding, because it's not like you're colluding with each other, but we kind of all understand how things are going to unfold. And what we're waiting for is to see the decisions that the other people are making, you know? Whereas when you have someone who's kind of kind of going from left field, you're just like, wow. Like, I remember playing one game of container with someone who just kind of kept saying, I'm going to be Walmart. I'm going to be Walmart. I'm going to be Walmart. And all they did was just price everything at the lowest possible point, they made no money. We could make no money because in the rules of container, you must buy the lowest priced uh, um, goods that are available to load onto your ship. And so it was kind of like, wow, like this person just kind of totally tanked the economy that the rest of us were kind of trying to build. And it didn't work out for them, and it didn't work out for us, and maybe we're just not good container players. But it was like that. That's another example of, of to me, like a game being a little bit fragile. And I don't think Imperial is anywhere near as fragile as Container is. Don't get me wrong, but sure. I do think that there is some opportunity there for things to get a little bit derailed. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to to mention that you know it's it's not like a a peeve or a or a flaw, but I think it's something that people should be aware of. Definitely, and depending on their game experience, I mean, Imperial might be filled with very non-obvious decisions as far as how your success in the game is built. And uh, for games like that, yeah, the game experience can be uh, difficult for some players. 
Well, Matt, I want to thank you very much for uh, reaching out and also for being patient and waiting um, so that we could get, finally get together and uh, record this episode about Imperial. So uh, it's it's one of my favorite designs, and uh, I know it's one of your favorites. And, uh, you know, I would also uh, I would remind people, I don't know if it's still out there, but, like, I actually have an app for Imperial. It's not the best, but it does work. Um, and, you know, I played quite a few games of Imperial on the app. I don't know if it's still out there or not, but, you know, you might want to check it out and do a little search and see whether or not you can find it and if they've updated it at all. Sure. Um, it was kind of a, a very basic kind of version of it. But, you know, it was a way for me to kind of get at least a little bit of an Imperial fix when I couldn't get a good group of people together. Um, because, you know, I, I kind of like playing it with a large player count. I don't know how you feel about that. And that's something we actually didn't cover. So <laughs> as we close here, uh, what is your kind of ideal player count for Imperial? What, what would you say to that, Matt? Well, I fell in love with Imperial playing the full six-player complement, but I would say these days I've really come to enjoy the four-player Imperial game. I think that's that's where my favorite is at the moment. And what do you think makes that your favorite? Is it is it kind of the opportunity to take more turns and uh, the diminished likelihood of being the Swiss banker player when you know you're you're having a, a tighter because all of the countries are in play. Just so people understand that you don't take yep, away countries game. with fewer players. So. Uh, this is what I mean by, you know, you might actually control two countries or, or something when you're only playing with four players. And so sure. that leads to a little bit more opportunity. Is is that what you appreciate about it or is it I, something different? No, I think you nailed it, actually. It's the increased opportunity to control more than one nation that sort of uh, allows you to do things like uh, sort of, you know, kind of build up one nation while using the other nation to, uh, you know, abuse the other players at the table. <laughs> Right, or or abuse your or abuse your own nation, which yeah, is an odd absolutely. situation I've been in. I, yeah. yeah, definitely <laughs> causing wars between both nations you control. Right, just right. delightful stuff. <laughs> It is in a crazy kind of way, but that's that's what makes Imperial special. So, well, Matt, thanks a lot for being on the show tonight and for uh, talking about Imperial. Thanks so much for having me on, Jeff. It was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Long View. I want to thank Matt for stopping by and talking with me about the great game of Imperial. And if you're looking for a copy of Imperial or perhaps Imperial 2030, uh, why don't you go and check out Gamesurplus.com, my sponsor. They have a huge selection of board games, incredible customer service, super fast shipping, and if it's something that's difficult or hard to find or perhaps an import, they'll be able to track it down for you. That's what makes them my first choice. That's Gamesurplus.com. I also, of course, want to give a shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you live in the Northeast PA region or northern New Jersey, southern New York, take a trip down and go right on Main Street in Stroudsburg, conveniently located off of Interstate 80. They have a huge selection of board games and card games, collectible card games, video games, you name it, they've got it. They have a friendly and knowledgeable staff, and if you do stop by, please be sure to tell them The Longview sent you. So for myself and for Matt, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening and have a great night.